what we're doing is not only adventure, it is adventure and it is fun, but it's also important because what we're doing is the first step of something big. And I know what that feels like. I did it three decades ago, almost three decades ago, with Amazon. Big things start small, and you, but you can tell. You can tell when you're onto something, and this is important. Uh, we're going to build a road to space so that our kids and their kids can build the future. That's Jeff Bezos talking about the deeper meaning of the suborbital spaceflight he took on a rocket ship that was built by Blue Origin, his very own space venture. Will suborbital trips by the likes of Jeff Bezos and Virgin Galactic's Richard Branson really help our kids build the future? Or will they be little more than a thrill ride for the ultra-rich? We'll get the lowdown on the billionaire space race from Jeffrey Kluger, who has chronicled space shots for 25 years as a senior editor at Time magazine, and who has just written a science fiction novel based on true stories from the International Space Station. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast. In this installment of Fiction Science, we talk with Jeffrey Kluger about his new book, as well as about all the new twists in the real-life saga of space travel. Times editor-at-large, Jeffrey Kluger, has written or co-written a dozen books, half of them about America's space effort, and he was a consultant on the Tom Hanks movie Apollo 13. He even makes a cameo in the movie, but it would be hard to come up with a movie plot as wild as what we've seen in the past few weeks, with billionaires Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson riding their own rocket ships to the edge of space. The commercial space race is moving so quickly that Kluger had to add references to it in the final stages of editing Hold Out, his first published science fiction novel. In addition to Bezos's Blue Origin and Branson's Virgin Galactic, there's Elon Musk's SpaceX, which is in the lead when it comes to billionaire space ventures. Kluger doesn't mention SpaceX specifically in the novel, but he does refer to a fictional California company that's called Celestix. It was a special treat to compare notes with Kluger during a Zoom chat that also involved my co-host for the Fiction Science Podcast, science fiction writer Dominica Fetaplace, and you might be surprised to hear how Kluger handicaps the billionaire space race. That's how we started our conversation. Jeffrey Kluger, thanks so much for being with us to talk about Holdout, a novel that mixes climate change and the International Space Station, two of the subjects that are close to my heart. And we do want to get into that, but there's a lot happening in space. And I know you've been writing about space for years and years, and we've had the launch of Virgin Galactic with one billionaire, Richard Branson, on board. And then there's Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos' space venture with Jeff and Wally Funk on board, and we're going to have the Inspiration4 mission on a SpaceX Crew Dragon with another billionaire, Jared Isaacman, serving as the commander of that mission. And so it it's almost like that's a whole science fiction novel in itself brought to life. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what the start of these commercial flights will mean for the space effort, uh, commercial, as well as the bigger picture of space exploration. 
Sure, and I think it's safe to say that a lot of these, uh, a lot of these flights, and I'm going to put the inspiration for flight in a separate category for a moment, but at least the first two flights are both more and less than what they seem. They are more than what they seem in that we've only seen two such flights and we've only seen two billionaires and their selective crews go to space with them. In that sense, this is a very elite group of very wealthy and powerful people who are in a unique position to build and fly their own spacecraft and put themselves in the commander seats of the ships. That is hardly something that um, the, the great mass of the rest of us are in a position to do. And at the same time, both of those enterprises also aim to commercialize these missions and make them available to, to, the, to the masses. But of course, these are masses who are capable of spending a quarter of a million dollars for a 17-minute vacation. So when we say the masses, we are using that term very loosely. At the same time, when I say more than, uh, more than they appear, these things have to begin somewhere. These things have to have some kickoff point. And I think the fact that both the Bezos and Branson flights flew in the same month in the same year energizes the idea of an industry that has enormous growth potential. You know, one of the, the points we like to make um, when we talk about this at time is that Charles Lindbergh flew across the ocean by himself in 1927 and just 12 years later we had Pan Am transatlantic service. So in a very short order, and this was in a obviously less technologically sophisticated era than ours, in very short order, we had the democratization of air travel. I say I put um, inspiration for in a separate category simply because that mission is an order of magnitude more complex and more ambitious than both the Bezos and Branson missions. And more expensive too. And more expensive too, yes. Um, they will be, we don't know exactly what all of the seats cost, but going by what the market bears for orbital seats, uh, it's probably a probably good guesswork figure is $50 million a seat. So to put four people aboard, the inspiration for a mission is $200 million, I would guess. But on the other hand, you have four astronauts or four civilian astronauts who are going to spend three days in space. They're going through rigorous, genuine astronaut training to get there. They're going to be doing real science when they're there. One of the uh, astronauts, Dr. Cyan Proctor, will be teaching a course from space, much the way poignantly Krista McAuliffe intended to do. And the mission is meant for a larger philanthropic purpose to raise funds and awareness for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. So the mission as a whole is longer, more ambitious, and more selfless than the other two missions. And while all three of them are happening in roughly the same time frame, I do think we put um, inspiration for in a separate category. How do you see this developing as a competitive uh, industry? Do you think that there will be one that becomes dominant, perhaps SpaceX because it's orbital or Virgin Galactic because of the flash and the customer service that Virgin is famous for or Jeff Bezos and Amazon? 
I mean Blue Origin. They're separate. They're separate uh, ventures, but you can't help but link the two. And and, uh, Amazon is famous for being able to dominate a market. So uh, how do you handicap the race? Uh, I handicap the race um, in terms of suborbital flight. I would argue that you are likely to see Blue Origin dominate that simply because their flight profile is simpler. They have a straight up and straight down booster and capsule flight model, which seems less complicated and not to put too fine a point on it, but less dangerous than the mothership and space plane model that um, that uh, Virgin Galactic has already flown. I don't want to be morbid. I don't want to be dark. Um, but Virgin Galactic has already lost one pilot in one fatal accident in 2014. That is not to say that that accident will be repeated. That is not to say that uh, that they will lose a plane load of paying passengers. That is to say that their system with a mothership taking a, a rocket plane up to 50,000 feet and then releasing it simply has more moving parts than the Blue Origin system has. And for that reason, I believe Blue Origin will probably dominate the suborbital market. SpaceX is again, an order of magnitude ahead of both of these companies. It has orbited the Earth. It has multiple times. It's had 117 launches or 122 launches now of its Falcon 9 rocket. It sent three crews to the International Space Station. It has a fourth flight coming up with with Inspiration4. This is simply something that the other two companies haven't remotely touched yet. They've stayed suborbital, and until I see them going orbital and uh, achieving some of the kinds of things that SpaceX is is achieving, uh, I think they are pretty much eating SpaceX's dust at the moment. And SpaceX Mm -hmm. in turn eating their lunch. So, Um, there's already been some pushback on the idea of billionaires spending their money to go to space. You saw that particularly with Jeff Bezos's flight and the perception that this is something just for the 0.001%. Do you think that this will have a long-term effect on how the public perceives uh, the space effort, or is this going to be a diversion for the ultra-rich, and and is it going to become an object of scorn? Uh, Well, I think as long as these flights cost at the minimum $250,000, I think it will be seen as a diversion for the ultra-rich. Now, people who can afford $250,000 for a mission are not in the 0.0001%, but they're sure in a heck of a lot more rarefied financial stratum than the overwhelming majority of Americans who simply couldn't afford that kind of money uh, for any kind of vacation, never mind a 17-minute vacation. So I think while both of these flights garnered a lot of public attention and people were very excited about it and there was a lot of rooting for the mission and a lot of quiet prayers for, you know, both both spacecraft to come home safely. I don't think either Bezos or Branson will come across as men of the people. And I don't think these enterprises will come across as enterprises that are for the great masses of us who are looking for a way to 
experience something thrilling. It's just something that's not at this point with a price point that is remotely available to the rest of us. Um, if there is ever, you know, a, a an economy of scale, if they ever build enough spacecraft that they really are launching these things dozens at a time, well, then, you know, cost might come down. Um, but I don't see that happening in the short or near-term future. Um, so for now, I think it's going to be a pretty elite way for pretty elite people to take a pretty elite trip. Yes, people have talked about the SUV standard, uh, hoping to bring the cost down to the cost of an SUV. And that is something I know that that Richard Branson and the other people at Virgin Galactic have talked about. It, it would make good grist for a future science fiction novel, I, I would think. Have you ever thought about it in that context? I have not thought about it in that context yet. Not yet. But now that you've given me the idea, uh, perhaps I will. And I will, of course credit you with uh, with giving me the spark of inspiration. I'll look forward to seeing my name in the acknowledgments for that novel. Okay. <laughs> Talking about the novel, it's got an astronaut on the cover and it's set on the International Space Station. So it's definitely a book for people who like fiction set in space, but it's also got this whole other part of about the climate crisis. So it's also part climate fiction. So I'm wondering how you got the idea for this book and how you decided to weave both parts of the book together. Um, that's a really good question. Uh, and the initial idea of the book was what a friend of mine called a post-it note idea, something that I could write in a single space, in a single phrase on a post-it note, and I don't even mean one of the big post-it notes, I mean one of those really little ones, and basically the idea was an astronaut who refuses to come home from the International Space Station, period. That was one premise, and then the entire effort over the next year, year and a half, became about trying to develop a reason she could do it, a reason that made her sympathetic, a reason that made her... Um, made her defensible since the character is breaking dozens upon dozens of international laws and international treaties. Um, she's doing something arrogant. She's doing something insubordinate. She's defying naval regulations. Uh, she is putting herself and the space station itself in danger. So that's not a character that you're going to love. So we had to give her a very good reason to do it. I came up with a goodly number of reasons. I won't even tell you what they were because they were so bad, they were flat out embarrassing. Um, but I finally, uh, in conversation with my agent, Joy Harris, the only agent I've ever had, the only agent I ever want to have. I love Joy. We've worked together since the 1990s. Um, uh, in conversation with her, we talked through the idea of making um, the death of the rainforest, um, climate change, and the protection of the indigenous peoples of the Amazon, uh, her motivation for staying aloft. From her rarefied position aboard the space station, she's able to monitor the burning of the jungle and the dislocation of the tribes, and is able to motivate the world to, um, to initiate an intervention to stop the burning and stop the ethnic cleansing. Um, I may have given away too much of the book because in the early pages of the book, we don't know why she's staying up, but that's her motivation. And I understand that although no one's ever in 
the real world refused to leave the International Space Station, there have been some like real life incidents in space that you used as inspiration for this space station parts of this novel. Could you elaborate on that? Yes, sure. Um, the character's real name is Belka, um, Belka Beckwith. She is uh, named after a Soviet space pup, uh, Belka the space pup, because her parents in the book love the Soviet space program. And the names that were given to the space dogs in Russia were very pretty names, Strelka and Belka and Laika and Bobko and really sweet names. So they named her Belka, but she takes on the name Wally. And she names herself after Wally Shara, who was one of the most jocular, gifted, and principled astronauts who ever flew. Um, he was one of the original seven astronauts. He's the only astronaut who ever flew all three of the early American spacecraft, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, and no one else ever flew all three. Um, and on the flight of Apollo 7, Wally actually, Wally Shara actually led uh, what amounted to the closest thing to a mutiny in space. This was uh, the first mission after the Apollo 1 fire um, when three astronauts died on the launch pad in 1967. This was a year and a half later in October 1968. Um, Shara knew that his crew was taking a real chance flying the restored and redesigned Apollo spacecraft. And his belief was that this was strictly an engineering mission to determine if the spacecraft was safe and the NASA flight planners on the ground had included too many experiments and too much extraneous work. So he actually launched again what came, what, what amounted to something close to a mutiny, effectively tearing up the flight plan and refusing to proceed with the mission as it was drafted and instead running, commanding it on his own from space. So Wally Beckwith, my character, uh, adores and admires uh, Wally Shara, sees him as a role model and has a tattoo on her wrist under her watch band that says WWWD, what would Wally do? And her standard is that if she can ask herself that question, and answer what would Wally Shara do in a given situation, she would never make the wrong answer. And you also have some incidents that happen on the Soyuz and the International Space Station that parallel things that actually did happen on the space station and on the Soyuz. So uh, I guess we can just leave it as read the book. And yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in the, in, at the end of the book, you talk about the real life incidents that inspired those plot twists yes there's some there's some emergencies there's some crises there's some near misses that happened in real life both with the old russian mir space station and later with the international space station and i had the opportunity to interview a great many many astronauts um many of whom were involved in these uh, were aboard during these emergencies and near emergencies and they gave me some very thorough accounts of it so i was able to read to weave that real history into the fictional tale in the book now, Andy Weir, who's the author of The Martian, admitted that he amped up the strength of a Martian windstorm to set his plot in motion. Are there any liberties that you took with the science in order to smooth the way for your plot? 
I will be honest and say no. Um, I was very careful about that. Um, I know Andy admitted that, and I give Andy credit for that. He simply said, I needed that device. It's a novel. I'm going to take that fictional liberty with it. And I say, rock on, Andy. You know, he, it's, that's one of the, the blessings of a novel that, you know, you get to make stuff up. Um, he didn't make too much stuff up. It was pretty rigorously researched. So in that context, um, you know, he could be allowed a little latitude. Since his technology and his novel was set a little bit further in the future than mine, and mine was um, based so heavily on, um, on contemporary technology, I took care to make sure that whatever happened technologically remained within the bounds of what could, in theory, happen technologically aboard the station. Some of the other things, some of the politics in Washington, you know, I may have taken a few liberties with that, with how Congress would have really behaved under certain circumstances, uh, how the attorney general would have really behaved under certain circumstances. But when it came to the science, I tried to keep it um, as close to the actual physics of spaceflight as possible. You worked in some sly references to SpaceX and Boeing, uh, the companies that were charged with uh, sending commercial crew to the space station. And it seems to me that the start of the commercial crew transportation era uh, renders the plot perhaps a little bit obsolete, that I'm not sure that it would have happened that way if there were commercial providers. Was that anything that you worried about to try to beat the clock on that? You are, you are incredibly perceptive for noticing that. Um, I wrote the book before SpaceX uh, and Boeing began to fly. Now, Boeing, of course, hasn't yet flown crew to the International Space Station, but they have flown an uncrewed astronaut spacecraft, and they're launching another one on July 30th. And when I wrote the book, um, the Soyuz was the only ride to town, or the only ride out of town. In the very, at the very end of the editing process, SpaceX started to fly, and uh, so did Boeing. So I had to quickly account for that. I had to include two companies, which I called Acadia and Celestix, um, but it's, there's no hiding the fact that they're Boeing and SpaceX. Um, and I just had to explain why, yes, they're capable of flying astronauts to the International Space Station. But in this case, they weren't. For this period of the story, they weren't. In one case, there was a strike at one of the companies. In the other case, there was an accident on a launch pad that didn't take any lives, but did cause the destruction of a $1.5 billion Mars probe. Um, so both companies were grounded for a little while. And that way I could continue with my storyline that uh, had only the Russians being able to provide the ride to and from the International Space Station that would bring Wally back with home. Kind of going back to the reality of the space station for a little bit, uh, how do you think that the rise of commercial crew transport might change the dynamics of space station life? Uh, is life aboard the space station going to be fundamentally different from how you portray it in the book, or is it pretty much the same, just a different taxi to get there? Well, I think both. Um, in terms of the professional astronaut crew, it's pretty much the same, just a different taxi to get there. But remember, there are also commercial crews coming aboard. Um, now, the uh, the Inspiration4 crew is not going to the space station. They're going to stay in, in Earth orbit 
for three days without rendezvousing with any other vehicle. But we have um, Axiom Space, which is flying a commercial crew to the space station. We have uh, a Russian Soyuz, which is flying a movie crew to the space station. So I think the um, life aboard the space station is going to become a little bit more crowded and um, a little bit more versatile with visitors coming aboard, um, staying for a week or 10 days at a time. And now they are required to participate in space space station life and actually contribute to uh, conducting science experiments and um, helping to maintain the station. So they're going to be treated like real crew members when they're there. They're not just B&B guests, but you definitely are going to see other members aboard the space station who are not the same kind of trained NASA or Roscosmos or European Space Agency or Japanese Space Agency astronauts that we're currently seeing. And speaking of additions to the space station, there's a new module called Nauka or science. It's a Russian science module. Uh, is that going to make a change? Uh, as we speak, it's still en route to the station and, and it may be hooked up not long after this podcast is published. But uh, I, I wondered if you had any idea whether this is going to make a fundamental change in how the space station is used. Well, I think, first of all, I'm a little worried about it at the moment because it is having some technical issues with thruster problems and antenna deployment problems and docking target problems. So they're going to have to work out some technical difficulties. But I, what encourages me the most is that the Russians have been talking as recently as April about abandoning the station partnership um, as early as the mid-2020s. Um, now, the fact that they are investing a brand new module in the station um, gives me hope that they will continue, indeed, uh, remaining a part of the International Space Station collaboration with the U.S. and the other 25 partner nations, um, and no less a person than um, Bill Nelson, the new NASA administrator, um, expressed the same sentiments this week when he said in so many words, uh, well, they say they're leaving the space station, but I can't imagine how they would possibly be doing that if at the same time they're sending up, you know, a valuable new um, module that will enhance the station and expand its capabilities. So I take this as a very good sign for the future of the, st of the station and the future of the collaboration between the U.S. and Russia. So this book is like very uh, fast paced. It has uh, like the, the feel of a thriller and parts of it were very cinematic. Did you um, think about at all what it would be like to see this book on screen? And do you have any thoughts on who could play Wally? Um, I think almost hourly of this book being on screen when I am not thinking of anything else, that's what's on my mind. So yes, I think about it all the time. It was in my mind when I was writing it. I'm not saying I wrote it more as a screenplay than as a book, but I did write it with, with, with the idea of a, a movie in mind. My agent in Hollywood at William Mars is working on getting it out there and seeing if we can generate some interest in it. And if I had my fantasy for who would play Wally Beckwith, I think it would be Elizabeth Moss. I would just love to see Elizabeth Moss as Wally Beckwith. I think she's got the grit. I think she's got the toughness. I think she's got 
you know, the emotional availability and accessibility. I just think she would be a perfect person for Wally Beckwood. Yeah, because of like the uh, the pacing of this book or being very careful to avoid uh, spoilers, like stuff gets revealed uh, all throughout the book. But um, without revealing too many spoilers, do you have a favorite scene of yours in this book? Oh, boy, do I have a favorite scene. Um, well, one of the the opening chapter is my is the most heart pounding scene. I think the opening chapter when the inciting event happens a little bit like the windstorm for the Martian, uh, the opening scene has an anomalous event, let's call, let's call it, that gets the action going. And that's a pretty thrilling scene. And all the way at the end of the book, the reentry scene, which is based on a, based on a real harrowing reentry um, with an American astronaut, Peggy Whitson aboard a, um, aboard a Soyuz uh, spacecraft. So that's a, a favorite scene. And a lot of the scenes that take place in the Amazon with our lead character in the Amazon, you know, a young woman who is a, a young doctor working for an organization like Doctors Without Borders. Um, a lot of the scenes with her and the young local boy from one of the indigenous tribes, a lot of those scenes are very tender and very sweet and mean a whole lot to me. That's great. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on science fiction angles that could become science fact when we're talking about space exploration in the next five or 10 or even 20 years. Are there any predictions you'd like to offer about the shape of things to come in moon exploration or Mars exploration or new space stations or God knows what? Well, I do think that uh, lunar habitation in the next five to 20 years is a very real possibility. And that's the first time I would have said that in a long time. I don't know how complicated the moon bases will be. Um, I'm in the middle of watching For All Mankind on Apple Plus, and it's, yeah, it's quite, an, uh, quite a series. And the moon bases there are pretty simple. Um, I think we could probably do better in the 21st century. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we have at least relatively simple um, but technologically advanced moon bases within the next 20 years. Um, the Gateway Space Station, which would orbit um, in the lunar vicinity, I think provides um, another way to get to and from the moon with some ease. And I think that opens itself up to other uh, storylines uh, for, for narrative fiction. And life on Mars, or not necessarily finding life on Mars, uh, importing life to Mars, human life on Mars. I do think that's in our future, but I think we're talking about the 2040s before we see that. But that doesn't stop us from writing about it fictionally now. And it doesn't stop Elon Musk from trying to make it sooner. Yes, that's exactly right. And nothing stops Elon Musk from accomplishing what it is he sets out to accomplish, it seems. Um, so we're curious, uh, what are you reading yourself or if you're watching anything interesting? And we also want to know what your next project is. Well, uh, as I say, I'm currently watching For All Mankind, which I am absolutely loving. And in fact, not long after we get off, I'm going to treat myself to the second half of the episode that I had to turn off early last night because I was too tired and going to bed. Not that I'm rushing off. Um, I am reading currently a book that has nothing to do with space. It's by a talented co-author, collab colleague of mine, uh, a woman at uh, Time Magazine named Jamie Ducharme, 
who wrote a splendid book called Big Vape about the rise of Juul in the United States, the Juul vaping system. Um, it's a terrific expose of the, the rise and fall of the company. And my next book, I am actually, I don't want to say out loud what the topics would be, but I am very undecided at the moment and torn between either uh, nonfiction or fiction. I have to hash this out with my editor and both my agent at this point. Both of them would be space related though. Um, I have written intermittently about space and then taken breaks from space. I wrote a book about siblings. I wrote a book about narcissism. I wrote a book about complexity. Um, all of these books were interspersed with my space books. But having written this space book and really feeling the passion for getting back into space, whether my next book is nonfiction or fiction, um, it would definitely will be space related. Well, that's a great note to end on with coming attractions. And Jeffrey Kluger, thanks so much for being with us today. We really enjoyed the book, Hold Out, and we hope it does well as a book and as a movie. I hope so, too. I, that is my dream. So I thank you very much for those wishes and for having me today. For more about Jeffrey Kluger and his new book, Hold Out, and for more about the big developments in commercial spaceflight, check out my Cosmic Log posting at fictionscienceclub.com. You'll find links to the space TV show that is Kluger's current favorite, as well as the nonfiction book that's on top of his reading list. While you're online, check out dominicafetaplace.com. Don't worry about the spelling, just follow the link from Cosmic Log. I'd like to thank Jeffrey and Penguin Random House for the interview, and thank James Emley for his rendition of the Cosmic Log theme, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to the Fiction Science Podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.